Welcome to the Denver Deep Dive Podcast. We are your hosts, Charlie Cummings and Lorenzo Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Our focus is on bringing awareness to the expert knowledge, passion, and personalities that have been and continue to be part of Denver's vibrant growth. We'll be exploring commercial real estate, cryptocurrency, cannabis, food and beverage, and health and wellness, along with the experts operating enthusiastically in each space. Every episode will showcase the individuals impacting these arenas, what they see as industry participants, and what new insights you can take away for yourself and your current ventures. We know we aren't the only shamelessly curious people out there, so if you love learning for its own sake, you're in the right place. Follow us on social media, wherever you consume your podcast. On this episode, we welcome Andrew Parr, founder of Angry Olive Consulting, a premier full-service advisor to privately owned, independent restaurant, bar, and hospitality concepts. The range of services include new restaurant openings, business analysis, project management, operational consulting, human resources, and mentorship and coaching for owners and managers. With over 25 years of experience, Andrew will share some of his perspectives on where the restaurant industry is and what to expect in the future. Andrew, welcome. Charlie, thanks for the invite. Good to be here. So, Andrew, tell us about your uh, nickname. <laughs> so, the only nickname I've ever had is when I was a freshman in college at Miami University. I was uh, pledging and received the nickname Aldo Cella. And uh, for those that uh, don't know, Aldo Cella was the spokesperson at one point in the uh, late 70s and early 80s for Cella Wines. And he was a stout, gregarious, fedora-wearing gentleman in an all-white suit who was always <laughs> drinking wine. So, and, uh, and I got the nickname because when I was going through Rush, I didn't know this, but everybody that was in the house referred to, referred to me as Andrew, that Italian guy. Which is super ironic because I'm of Latvian and Lithuanian descent. Oh, there's no Italian? <laughs> no Italian. <laughs> so one of the things I want to ask you, so we've had Kyle Deuce on the show as well, and we have this Wisconsin connection. So certainly a lot of representation from the Badger State Absolutely. In, the, in the restaurant world. And I know there's some great restaurants in Milwaukee too. So uh, talk, tell us about your start in the restaurant business, you know, where it came from and then what you do now. Sure. I mean, you know, like a lot of people, I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, started as a busboy dishwasher as a summer job, and uh, then continued working in restaurants as I was putting myself through school, and uh, ultimately uh, ended up becoming uh, a restaurant manager for a, a big national casual dining chain. And um, it was, you know, it was, that was fantastic, learned significant amount of systems. Um, I worked for as a director of food and beverage for um, Marriott at one point. And, uh, you know, so I've, I've got a lot of background in big systems driven corporate structures. Um, and then uh, went on, worked for some, some smaller independent places. And um, I had an opportunity where, you know, people would start asking me, hey, you know, I need help. And I was still, you know, fully employed by somebody else. And so I started doing small projects here and there and then realized that 
the small projects here and there could actually turn into a living. So it was uh, a little bit, of, almost six years ago that uh, I started doing consulting full time and uh, really focusing on helping other people realize what their dreams were. So one of the things when you when you meet a restaurant, you know, everybody has their sort of pain points. So I know with the approach you take is very full service, right? Mm-hmm. You have you have a team of people that specialize in different aspects of the business that you bring on board. And so you're really about trying to figure out, okay, what, what's their challenge? How can I find the solution? Um, you know, not just pushing one or the other. You try to bring as many uh, pieces to this, this pie as possible. Absolutely. You know, the first thing I do when I sit down with somebody is I ask them, why they want to open up a restaurant and what their long-term goals are. Um, it's not uncommon for me to have someone call me and say, Hey, I'm, I've been an IT project manager my entire professional life, but I've always dreamed of opening up a restaurant or, um, you know, I'm, I'm a surgeon, but I really love food and, and I've got a great practice, but I want to open up a restaurant. And so that's typical of my clients. So it's it's very important for me to understand exactly why they want to do it and what they want to get out of it so that I can really help guide them in terms of where they should go and what they should try to execute. Some of these people intend to run it themselves and, and they've endeavored to achieve some level of, of uh, education on their own. And some people just want to own a restaurant because it's, you know, <laughs> apparently glamorous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you bring a point. Um, the labor is, has been a huge issue, right? Yes. I get I get this from a lot of restaurant clients I deal with, and it's they're one of their biggest challenges. So I guess when you start coaching and, and working with these, these owners and they're about to open up and launch a restaurant, you know, when should they figure out this hiring process? When, when do you get involved? When do you help them with that? And how do you retain people in this in this market right now where yeah there's so many options different places to work and it's certainly competitive and it's a lot of work absolutely too. you know i i think that uh, there are a lot of challenges and um you know unfortunately for food and beverage a low unemployment rate is a challenge because when unemployment rates are higher uh, and people aren't working in their you know their lane most people have at some point had a touch point with a restaurant, you know, whether they were going to school or as a means to an end. So, so you go back to it. It's, you know, in, in a certain way, it's, it's like riding a bike. You can, you can always get back on and go ride that again. Um, in Colorado, there are also challenges because there's such a significant amount of construction all the time. And um, in the marijuana industry, um, both of those segments have taken away a great deal of the labor pool for restaurant employees. As you mentioned, it, it's very hard work. It's physically demanding. And there are other opportunities now in other segments that you can get paid, you know, probably the same or a little bit more and not have to work as hard. Um, it used to be during the life cycle of a new restaurant opening, I would, uh, for line level employees, I would have my clients start the hiring process about six weeks before they were ready to open. Now, eight or 10 weeks, and and you have to leave that amount of time so that when you go through your initial hiring push, when you ultimately don't get the number of employees that you feel that you need to open, which inevitably happens, you have to have that extra time to fill in the gaps. And, and you know, if, you, if your strategy is to have a hiring fair, 
you still are going to end up having to do individual scheduled one-on-one interviews with people based on their availability to fill out the rest of your roster. And, you know, I think in terms of once you are hired up in terms of retaining employees, it's, it's at this point, money is money. And, and yes, you know, there are certain, within the variety of restaurants, you can make more money on shorter shifts and, you know, depending upon the, the per person average in a given restaurant, you know, a steakhouse versus a burger place is going to be different. Um, but it's really about the environment that you provide. And I, I think one of the things that's really important is creating that sense of belonging, um, really bringing each of your employees into your brand and branding them, if you will, and, and looking at non-traditional opportunities to provide your team with something that they might not get someplace else. Uh, you know, the opportunity to take a field trip to a hydroponic greenhouse or to have a library on hand or just to be able to go on Amazon and say, hey, you know, I know you want to read this book and it's going to be beneficial for you. And because it'll be beneficial for you, it'll be beneficial for the business and for our guests. So I'm going to buy it. You read it when you're done. We keep it. It's part of the library. So I think looking at some of those non-traditional rather than just saying, I'll give you 50 cents more an hour than if you stay. Um, Because I think if somebody really is going to leave for that little money, there's a much bigger systemic issue than the 50 cents an hour. Yeah, and I think service is something that I know Colorado wrestles with quite a bit. I mean, in my experience, you know, we can we can bring the quality of food up in the concepts, but the service can be lacking because we're not getting, you know, people that are getting trained and, and really want to be in the business. You know, some people, yeah. like I said, fall into it or get into it because they're, you know, at a different place in their life. And but so I think, yeah, that's a big thing for restaurant. Uh, Absolutely. I think service is a big deal. And it's it's still kind of those restaurant 101 issues that people struggle with. I mean, I went uh, last Friday night, my in-laws were in town and my wife and the in-laws and I went out to dinner at one of the older restaurants in town. <clears throat> very well liked, very well established. But it was a holiday weekend. They were short staffed. It was very apparent. They were on a false weight with open tables food was taking a long time to come out of the kitchen. Um, you know, our server was doing the very best job that he possibly could, but he was getting his butt kicked because there just weren't enough people on the floor. And then there were other challenges like, you know, they hadn't put the music on yet. So we're finishing up dessert at a seven thirty reservation and they turned the music on. And um, so I think, some of those nuts and bolts, basic 101 things are still challenges that restaurant tours need to be aware of. What would you say uh, right now, you know, if a restaurant comes to you and there's certain plenty of ways for them to prepare, mm-hmm. but what would you say one of the biggest things about getting their concept right? What was the biggest piece of advice you give as far as that? I, I think the biggest piece of getting your concept right is staying true to who you are. Right. You cannot be everything for everybody. I mean, you know, you can't, you know, I think in terms of retailers, Nordstrom's is one of those companies that is really well known for exceptional service levels. But at the end of the day, 
you can't go into discount tires, buy a set of tires, decide you don't want them and return them to Nordstrom, right? Mm -hmm. Nordstrom doesn't try to be everything for everybody. They just try to be the very best at what they are. And I think that's what's imperative for, you know, and, and certainly over the course of time, your guests are going to tell you what they like and what they don't like. And you can certainly make adjustments and shifts based on that. But when you're getting ready to open, you need to know who you are, why you're opening, what what purpose you're going to serve, and stay true to that. So don't just follow profit margins on what food makes the best. Uh... <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, you, I mean, certainly, I mean, cost is an issue. And, and uh, the cost of food, the cost of labor, the cost of rent, none of that's going to be going back down. Um, so you have to be very thoughtful in terms of what you're doing. But again, it all has to be tied back to who you are and what your brand is. And you just, you have to have that unique sales proposition and, and that has to be your mantra and you need to stick to it. Here's another good question. What seemingly common sense things do you see people messing up on in this industry? You know, I, I, I think it's kind of, you know, we touched on that a little bit um, just a few minutes ago. I, I think it's just the basics of, you know, you get to work, you walk your property, you know, you, you need to see, are there lights out? Is there trash outside? Is there, you know, is there a door unlocked that shouldn't be? And then just walking through your entire shift from that point forward and, and being aware. I think that's the biggest challenge is you can't be stuck in an office. You, you know, you, you can't, I, I think you tend to notice when you have a conversation with somebody who's a restaurant manager or owner and has been operating for a long time, especially if you're talking to them in their space. The amount of time that they spend looking you directly in the eye is pretty minimal because their head is always on a swivel trying to understand what is going on around them. And lacking that understanding is, I think, one of the most basic things that you have to have under your belt and that is, is sometimes missing. Hmm. And now from a cost perspective, what are, you, what are some areas you think restaurants can do better at? Uh, when, you, when you're looking at sort of projections and operating budgets, what are some areas you see that they could either increase or decrease that could really help their bottom line? You know, I, I think it varies a lot from concept to concept and 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 where in the life cycle a particular restaurant is. Um, you know, obviously prime costs are, are the number one thing that you look at. So food cost, beverage cost, labor cost. You know, I, I had a client that was running... 110% prime cost. So wow. they're losing money just on food, beverage, and labor before they even get to, you know, marketing, discounts, rent, mm -hmm. you know, cable television, everything else that goes along with it. So I, th I think that those numbers, uh, you know, they're called prime costs for a reason. Um, those have to be tight first. And Tight doesn't mean you're being cheap. Tight means you're being smart. You know, um, you have to take advantage with food. You take advantage of seasonality if you have that flexibility in your menu so that um, you're not buying the most expensive items out of season just because you decide that it would be a great special. Um, and, and I think labor is really important to look at, too, because 
you can't understaff. I've actually found that there is, especially in the front of the house, there's a certain benefit in terms of growing revenue to overstaffing. Um, and now it's becoming much more expensive to do that because even though Colorado remains a tip credit minimum wage state, uh, you know, that wage is, is more than double what it was eight years ago. And explain that to Sure. So um, in a number of states across the country, including Colorado, um, federal government allows employers to pay their tipped employees uh, a percentage less than full minimum wage with the assumption that the tips that they earn and claim as income um, will make up the difference. And in most cases, it not only makes up the difference, but more than makes up the difference. Um, but, uh, you know, predominantly, um, you know, Oregon, Washington State, California, they don't have a tip credit minimum wage. So um, everybody that's an employer in those states has to pay every employee full minimum wage, regardless of whether they earn tips on top of that or not. That's pretty lucrative for the... It is, but you also have to take a look at the cost of living in some sure. of those states and, and some of the cities in that state. You know, um, Oregon, I can speak to having having lived and worked there a little bit. Um, there's no sales tax in the state of Oregon, which is wonderful, but state income tax is more than double what it is in Colorado. So if you're trying to translate a business from Denver to Portland you really have to look at labor very differently, not only from the point of view of what it's going to cost you to pay your employees to operate there, but also what it costs your employees to live there. You know, um, a, a, a $45,000 salary for a sous chef in Denver is way more money because of taxes than it is at that same rate for that same person in Portland. Hmm. So what do you think owners, you know, outside from adjusting, you know, pay rates, but have you seen other incentives caught like cost of living, whether subsidizing housing or other things like that? Some of these, I'm talking high expensive markets, uh, cities like a San Francisco, you know, it'd be really hard to retain staff at, at some right. of those wages. You know, I, I think it's interesting, you know, when you look at um, the casinos in Colorado, mm -hmm. Um, a lot of them have and, and have done this for a very long time, adopted that model where, uh, especially in season, uh, you know, they, they give you a bus pass to get back and forth uh, up and down the mountain. Uh, but they also have essentially, you know, dormitories, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of like the, uh, you know, the Google model. Yeah. Right. Um, so. I don't think that that's really an option that's available for the single unit operator, but for somebody that has a number of, whether it's the same concept or different concepts and multiple units located in proximity to each other, I think that that's potentially an option, um, especially if they have their businesses set up as separate operating entities and can cross-utilize their employees from one location to another without having the burden of having to pay overtime, hmm. right? Because if, if you work at um, restaurant A and you also work at restaurant B and you work 30 hours a week at each of them, 
you're working 60 hours, but you're not being paid overtime. But if you really enjoy your employer and would really not have to shuttle between two different jobs, the employer, if they've got their business set up the right way and they're completely separate operating entities, you could work 30 hours a week at restaurant A and restaurant B that are both owned by the same employer. The employer doesn't have to bear the overtime burden, but you have the security of understanding that you, you know, you love the people that you work with and you work for and the concept and you don't have to, you know, getting a second job is, is staying within the family. It's not Mm -hmm. having to look outside. Interesting. What do you see as uh, some of the biggest trends right now? You know, fast casuals really, really kind of evolved. Uh, yeah. What do you see happening? You know, future with that. I I really think, uh, and it's and it you you you've seen it begin to happen already. Um, <clears throat> I think hybrid service style and and smaller footprints are are really going to grow and become popular. And um, you know, I saw this a lot in Portland when I was out there you have a number of 35 to 45 seat restaurants and they are always busy and there's always a line out the door because they're just smaller. And, you know, sure, they could they, sh- they could grow to a location that's got 150 seats, but then what if you can't fill 150 seats? What, what does your rent go up to? Um, you know, how much more difficult does it become to view your entire business all the time? And then, of course... What does it take to staff that? Um, And I think tying this conversation back to the labor conversation, having a smaller footprint and having stylized hybrid service where, you know, it's, it's well beyond counter service, but it's definitely not full service, but there's still a higher level of attention. You know, when, when you get your number or or your pager or whatever it is, and, and somebody brings your food to the table, they're still engaging you. Maybe they have a, a mobile pad that they can, you know, ring in an, an additional order for you on the spot. So I think that level of service is still going to be super important, but I think definitely the trend is going to be much smaller footprints and, and hybrid service. And there will always be full service restaurants. They're never going to go away and, and people will pay for that. Um, but I think you're finding uh, also that, with the proliferation of, of smaller and hybrid service style restaurants, people are willing to pay far more than fast food prices for that understanding, you know, that you're still getting a high quality environment and high quality food. And, um, you know, I, I think that people are in general still trying to make healthier choices. And, and I think that we've come a long way with that. I mean, fortunately we live in Colorado and, and that's kind of always been a hallmark of this state. <laughs> but, you know, whether it's low carb or keto or sugar free or, you know, it's it's not just, um, you know, oh, I, I choose to eat gluten free or, you know, I mean, people are are making much more informed decisions and changing their lifestyles. And to be able to have the option to eat that way in a I mean, I hate to say fast casual, but in a, in a hybrid service style environment, they're willing to pay more for that than, than you would think. Hmm. So for yourself personally, what would you say was one of the best investments you made in, in your 
in your life here, in your business, um, whether it's been something monetary or something, just other personal growth? What's one thing that comes to mind? Um, you know, I think over the course of the last five years, I have been engaged with um, a nonprofit foundation called the, the Scleroderma Foundation. And scleroderma is an autoimmune disease with no cure that about 300,000 people in the U.S. live with, including my father. And um, I got connected to the organization because my dad went to a national conference and met the executive director of the chapter here. And as it turned out, um, we had a mutual interest and it was my interest in food and beverage and their interest in putting on their first annual fundraiser, which was a food and beverage and cocktail competition um, that also supported um, a silent and live auction piece. And so over the course of the last five years, I volunteered on the committee to, to put that, um, that gala in place, if you will. And uh, last year, at the end of the year, I was invited to join the board of directors, and um, I have now just been elected president of the board for the local chapter of the Scleroderma Foundation. And it's just, it's been a phenomenal opportunity for me to really just take what I love to do and support not only this organization, but from a distance also be able to support my dad who lives with us and, and know that, you know, I'm, I'm working hard um, with this organization to, to meet its mission. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, so how can people find you now? You know, we're all interested. So yeah. whether they're looking to open up a restaurant, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? And what does that process look like? Absolutely. So uh, my website is angryoliveconsulting.com. And uh, you can submit an email inquiry through the website. My phone number is 720-202-6069. You're welcome to give me a call or a text. Um, shoot me an email at andrew at angryoliveconsulting.com. Um, pigeons, smoke signals, you know. I, I, I'm always around, always available. Well, thank you, Andrew, for being on the podcast. We Absolutely. really appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie.